1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: I'm Ido Vock in Berlin.
3: I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C.
2: It's Friday, the 19th of February.
3: Welcome to World Review from the New Statesman.
2: Thank you for joining us.
3: All right, we're back another week. Ido, how is Berlin?
2: Berlin's okay. I know there's not a lot of news that is not vaccine related, so I apologize for bringing up the same issue again and again. But the big issue here this week is that apparently there is a lot of hesitancy around the AstraZeneca vaccine here because I think largely in part because of quite bad reporting around how effective it is, particularly in elderly people. So apparently there are hundreds of thousands of doses lying around in Germany that are just not being used, which is obviously pretty bad news because not only is Germany not getting enough doses, as most other European countries are, because of issues that we've talked about before on the podcast, but the doses that Germany is receiving are not being used. The doses that Germany is receiving are not being used. So it's not great news all around. And how is Washington, D.C.?
3: Well, the excitement here is that it's snowing today in Washington, D.C., which I mentioned because it's related to my moment of the week, which is that there was a devastating winter storm in the state of Texas. And it was all the more devastating because Texas, in order to keep out federal regulations, has most of its energy on this one grid and (laughs) that grid And because it's not regulated, various energy companies were kind of left to their own devices in terms of whether after this big 2011 storm, they would update the infrastructure to better prepare for winter. Those companies chose option B. So when the storm hit, you had basically had much of the natural gas infrastructure freeze. People have not had heat. They have not had power because they were keeping their faucets on, like dripping, in order to keep frozen pipes from bursting water is now at dangerously low levels and not safe to drink. In the midst of all this, Texas Senator Ted Cruz went to Cancun, Mexico with his family. He was spotted at the airport and ended up coming back the next afternoon. I wrote about this this week, but it's been it's been really striking to see all the ways in which various community groups have come together to try to support their neighbors contrasted with you know the Texas governor Greg Abbott who's gone on TV and blamed the Green New Deal which is like not in effect so how could that be the issue and with a senator who quite literally skipped town what is your moment of the week
2: I will say on that from viewing it from abroad from outside America it's quite surreal having a quote-unquote normal news story that isn't you know something insane that the president has said or some kind of wild conspiracy theory it's just Policy issue, or like a natural disaster,
3: right? We can now just go back to to, <laughs> to regular abdication of responsibility of governments to their own people, not like driven by absurd tweet.
2: Yeah, exactly. There. There's slightly more substance to the story than than a tweet. My moment of the week is that the prime minister of Georgia, so Georgia, the country, not yours, resigned following plans to arrest the an opposition leader. So the prime minister is called Georgi Kakarja. And the opposition politician, so the leader of a party called the United National Movement, Nikia Milia, was going to be arrested. And the Prime Minister sat down because he believed the case to be politically motivated and that it would contribute to polarisation. Regular listeners will know that this is a country in which I have quite a lot of interest and i have always been fairly bullish on democracy in georgia i think that as i've said many times i think for for its neighborhood and for its circumstances georgian democracy is remarkably robust but i think this is quite a clear example of some pretty clear-cut backsliding that of which there's been more and more in recent years since this party georgian dream came to power in 2012 so i will be interested to see how that develops
3: Yeah, it's definitely one to watch. It sort of thematically relates to our main subject of the week. So why don't you bring in our guest?
2: So our guest this week, we are very excited to have Wei Nin, who is an activist with Burma Campaign UK. Wei Nin was born in Rangoon and advocates on behalf of political prisoners in Myanmar. Welcome.
4: Thank you for having me.
2: It's a great pleasure to have you here. Obviously, we are speaking to you in the aftermath of the coup in Myanmar, so the military coup that there was, I believe, at the beginning of the month. It's now been a few weeks since that coup. Can you just update us on, first of all, kind of bring us up to speed on the background to the coup a few weeks ago and also how the situation has evolved since that?
4: So on 1st of February, the military in Burma, they staged a coup there were a lot of speculations before they staged a coup on 1st of february because they were accusing the winning party National League for Democracy and i'm sure many many of people know Aung San Suu Kyi that's her party that they committed a voter fraud so the military was accusing the NLD of that so they said in the end if the NLD were not going to investigate the voter fraud, they will have no choice but to stage a coup. So there were a lot of threats and there were a lot of speculations leading up to the coup on 1st of February. But of course, in the end, they stage a coup. But that's actually an excuse for military to take control of the country again. They are saying that they are doing everything under the constitution and they have no choice but to do this to restore democracy in the country the NLD were not very helpful to the request from the military. So these are all the allegation and also pretense for staging a coup and grabbing control of the country again.
2: I'd just like to ask you, I think a lot of our listeners certainly who aren't sort of familiar with Myanmar or Burma will wonder about the difference between the two names. And obviously the kind of official name of the country is Myanmar, but you choose to say Burma. Can you sort of explain why that's the case?
4: I think the, um, now, I think mean, in the last couple of years, the name is not that much of a, a big of an issue anymore. But the military dictatorship changed the name in, I think, 1989, without uh, you know consulting ethnic minorities. So a lot of ethnic minorities in my country feels that Myanmar doesn't represent all ethnic people. It only represents Burman ethnic group, and also they didn't make the decision in a democratic manner, and they just change it. So. A lot of people who are involved in activism and asking for democracy and etc. they call, uh, they still use Burma rather than Myanmar.
2: That's really fascinating.
4: May I just
3: ask before we delve into more detail, I think some people who maybe have not been following the country
4: that closely, or indeed you have, are asking, why is this happening now? There was a lot of, you know, there were a lot of speculation. And most of us who are familiar with the Burmese politics, we were trying to make sense of why this was going to happen, because we couldn't make sense of it. A lot of analysis came out before the uh, the coup was that the army, the military in Burma had been in the best position they had ever been in the last you know, 20 years. They wrote the constitutions that we are in. They made sure that the, enough power is held by the military, so they had everything they needed. So the main thing came down to the the main person of the military, me online, and his ambition. He is supposed to retire in July, but he doesn't want to. And because he doesn't have any contingency plan after his retirement. And also he is the most wanted person for war crimes and crime against humanity in ethnic area. So for his safety and security for himself, but also for his economy and wealth. So this purely came down to his personal ambition that the military staged a coup.
2: Can you speak a bit about your own personal background? So as I understand it, your father is a fairly high profile sort of dissident or political prisoner. He's a former leader of student protests in an uprising in 1998. Since being released, he has continued to campaign as a prominent leader of student groups and advocating for greater democracy in in Myanmar. And so can you sort of explain how you came to your position within Burma Campaign UK and also kind of your personal involvement with the fight for democracy in in Myanmar?
4: So my father was one of the student leaders organising the uh, peaceful protest in 1988. There was a massive student uprising against the dictatorship. And he was one of the organizers for peaceful protest. So he was arrested for speaking out against the dictatorship. When he was arrested, I was five months old. My grandparents were very protective. So my mother showed me a photograph of my dad and taught me to call Daddy. And I didn't get to meet him until I was four. And he was behind, there were um, iron bars between us. You know, we couldn't embrace each other or we couldn't even hold hands. And he was released when I was eight. And he continued doing his political activities and he continued speaking up for democracy and freedom. And in 2006, I passed the high school in Burma and I wanted to go to a university to study either international relation or I wanted to be a teacher. But I couldn't be a teacher in my country. I still can't because my father, as a former political prisoner, he has a criminal record and everyone, you know, the children of a parent with criminal record, we can't have a civil jobs. And I wasn't allowed to go to university to study international relation either. So I came to the UK uh, to study for a year. And then my father got arrested again, in 2007 for organizing another peaceful protest. So that's how I started getting involved. Especially coming to the UK, I realized so many things. You know, one thing in particular is freedom of expression, I could speak out, I didn't have to worry about getting arrested or being threatened of arrest for speaking out. So I started speaking out for my dad and for many people who were arrested in 2007. And at that time, he was sentenced to 65 years in prison. That was a you know, shock for all of us. And because of you know all the international pressure on the military dictatorship and international campaigning, he and other high-profile political prisoners were released on parole in 2012. But then since then on, I've been continue, uh working with Burma Campaign, and I mainly work on political business cases. I talk to family members. You know, I understand the issue, so I talk with them. And I make sure that their loved ones and their cases are being heard in the uh, British Parliament and in the UN. So this has been my job.
2: Really interesting. On the issue of democracy in Myanmar. So we've talked slightly about how, although it was imperfect, there was a kind of institutionalized institutionalized role for the military. And the military still had immense power. And you said they were in their best position they had been for 20 years, there still was a kind of a form of democracy and that democracy resulted in Aung San Suu Kyi's party being elected twice. I think the kind of view of Aung San Suu Kyi has certainly in the West drastically changed since she was first elected or since she first came to power. So as many of our listeners will know, she was a more or less a political prisoner for I think 15 years until the military agreed to hold elections. And she she was elected and she became basically the equivalent of prime minister. But since then, especially because of her defense of the army's conduct towards Rohingya Muslims, which is widely now considered to be genocidal, she's kind of had a bit of a fall from grace in the eyes of, of the West. And perhaps that may have led to a slightly more muted international reaction to the coup than might otherwise have been expected.
3: I would cut in here to ask if it's also led to a more muted response among activists and human rights campaigners, right? That the that the government that you're fighting for was itself, you know, charged with with keeping political prisoners and human rights violations. Is there a tension there?
4: I think, you know, we will have to disagree on Burma having democracy to start with. Of course, you know, the things were getting better from, you know, two 2000- thousand. Fifteen onwards, but we never had true democracy. Things were getting better, things were moving into a right direction, but especially if you speak to ethnic minorities, they will disagree that there was a democracy in the country. And even under Aung San Suu Kyi's government, of course, the Rohingya and the ethnic minorities issues are the big flag, but also if you look at freedom of expression and freedom of association there were a lot of restrictions on that and there were a lot of restrictions around journalists and they you know they couldn't report on current situations and even you know Al suchis and her party members were suing journalists and activists for uh, speaking out against them and criticizing against them so of course the army had a lot of power but when it comes to political business situation we saw that the numbers were, you know, they kept growing under the Aung San Suu Kyi's government. And also she had the majority in the parliament and she had the power to release those political prisoners and she didn't. And she had the power to at least amend and change the repressive laws and she didn't do that either. So now we are under the coup and all the laws are being used against Aung San Suu Kyi and President Wenye and other detainees, other repressive laws that the NLT government could have changed in the last five years. And then we have the, uh, you know, ethnic minority questions in our country. And when the Aung San Suu Kyi became, you know, when she, her party was elected, a lot of people were hopeful that the country will at least move towards the federal democracy, or at least more of an inclusive society. But she didn't speak out on the issues that she could have spoken out. So you know, when it comes to Rohingya and the Muslim issue, a lot of people lost hope in her. And she was saying there were a lot of, you know, defenders of Aung San Suu Kyi saying, oh, she couldn't have done anything because the army was the one attacking the minorities in Rohingya. But we wanted her to speak out on a moral ground, saying this is wrong and what's going on to the Rohingya and the other Muslims and other minorities are wrong. But she didn't say any of that. So other ethnic minorities like Chin and Karan, even if they had a little hope in her, they lost hope as well because uh, she didn't speak out about any of the human rights abuses happening in the country. She was trying to, you know, there were a lot of speculations about she was trying to make compromise and she was trying to make deals with the military. But now we know that none of those work because we are possibly going to be under another dictatorship for God knows how long.
2: Wherever you are in the world,
3: if you're interested in global affairs,
2: you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print or both from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe.
3: That's just $2 a week in America.
2: So uh, there have been massive protests in recent weeks in opposition to Military rule and in support of Aung San Suu Kyi. You've just said that Myanmar might be under, is under military dictatorship, and the timescale for that is fairly indefinite. What future perspectives do you see for Myanmar? Do you think it's realistic that the military, which staged a coup to get rid of a government which was elected in a fashion, even if you can't call it exactly democratic, but one an election of sorts, would be comfortable having that? that same party run again and presumably win at some point? Or do you think Myanmar is going to remain under the control of the the military for some time yet?
4: Well, there are a lot of analysis on that because the army, you know, the military said they are doing everything under the 2008 constitution. And also they're going to hold an election after a year or of state of emergency. So what we worried is that, you know, the international community is going to fall for that and wait and see whether there will be a free and fair election after a year. But if the military truly respect democracy, uh, democratic values, and if they truly want democracy, they wouldn't stage a coup in the first place. And we have seen a lot of, you know, the statements of condemnation and letters of concerns from the international community towards the coup in Burma. But in this two weeks, we've seen more than 500 people have been arrested. And most of them, we don't know where they are, where they are being detained. And in ethnic area, in, like Nichina and other parts of the country, there are police brutality against the peaceful protesters. So they are still, you know, continue to do those uh, human rights violations. Of course, because, you know, one May online, when he states the coup, he knew the consequences will come from the international community. But if you look at the international response in the past with the Rohingya crisis or the ethnic minorities crisis, it had been very little. So he's calculating that he can get away with it. You know, even yesterday, the UK announced the sanctions on military generals, and they are freezing assets of the military generals. But of course, it's encouraging stuff, but it's not very helpful, because first of all, none of us believe that military has any assets in the UK. And when they are banning the generals to come to the UK, it means it's a holiday ban. And you know, they don't really care about coming to the UK or Europe to come on a holiday, there are so many parts of the country, you know, parts of the world that they can go. So it's not a very effective or impactful action from the international community. So if the military think they can get away with all the things that they are doing and very little action from the international community, then they will keep on doing it. And none of us believe that we will have a a multi-party election next year. So at the moment, most of the activists on the ground as well, we are trying to be hopeful, but also we are trying to be realistic that this could be a long journey again. And what would you like to see the international community
3: do, right? What, what do you think would be actually useful and productive in this long journey?
4: So we are calling for even, you know, activists and students and individuals inside the countries, they are boycotting military products, uh, military consumer products and, you know, and military companies. We are collectively calling for EU and the UK to sanctions uh, military companies, stop doing business with the military, because they are using this money to stage a coup, they are using this money to buy more weapons and oppress the people in the country. So we are calling for that. And also, of course, there are international diplomatic pressure that they could be using. And the other main important thing is a global arms embargo. I know the US and the Canada, they have that already, but there are other parts of the world that they should be, they should stop selling weapons and uh, stop weapons going into the country, because the generals don't need more weapons to oppress people in the country.
2: And on that note, it's time to move on to a section that our colleagues at the New Statesman podcast like to call.
3: You ask us. So we've sort of touched on this, but I'd like to go deeper into it. And some of our listeners wanted to know how have ethnic minorities, obviously not all of whom are the same, reacted to the coup, given the mixed record that the government had in the first place toward them?
4: You know, when we had the protest, I think for first day, a lot of ethnic activists, they were very outspoken. But it was very encouraging to see the ethnic minorities coming out to protest in ethnic area and also in uh, downtown uh, Yangon as well. So it's very, you know, it's an encouraging moment to see the unity and solidarity in Burma. But uh, a lot of the uh, media focus had been in the downtown, you know, like in Yangon or in the main cities. So the message, especially about you know what people want, is very different. So if you look at most pictures on the social media and everything, people in Yangon and people in downtown areas are calling for the release of Aung San Suu Kyi and President Winmye and. To restore the democratically elected government, but in ethnic area, their message is very different, and is very important to recognise that what they are calling for is to abolish military dictatorship, to abolish two thousand eight constitution, and to establish a a federal democratic union. You know they have suffered under uh, military dictatorship under the military. For so long, and this is the moment for you know all of them to unite and show solidarity with people in you know central Burma. And I hope that this unity and solidarity stays after the Aung San Suu Kyi has you know is released because I worry that most of the people in central Burma think, oh, everything is okay now, let's go back to you know let's go back to work or let's stop this protest. So we need to. Acknowledge and hear more ethnic voices from the area, and even with the you know crackdown for peaceful protesters, we see more of the police brutality and arrest and crackdown in ethnic area than in central Burma. So, to move forward, Burma as a you know with democracy and genuine reconciliation, we need to hear more voices from the ethnic minorities, and also media should focus more on ethnic minorities' voices as well.
2: Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. Please keep them coming in to us at youaskus.co.uk and look up for our announcement of our guest next week on our international Twitter account at Statesman World.
3: So before we go, as always, we are going to close with what each of us is looking to in the week ahead. Wei Nin, you're our guest, so we'll let, we'll let you go first. What in world affairs will you be
4: keeping an eye on next week? I think I know the answer. Yeah. So uh, two things, actually, because on Monday, there will be a decision from the EU whether to impose sanctions on Burma and what kind of sanctions they will impose. So that will be one thing that I'm going to look forward to, if that's the right term. Hopefully, you know, we, it's the result that uh, we all have been asking for. And also the other thing is a bit of a long hope, but so my dad was arrested on 1st of February uh, when the coup started and we haven't heard anything about him. So we've been working with different people to hear where he's been detained and how, you know, his condition is. So hopefully there will be some news next week, but I'm not very hopeful, but uh, the weather is getting nicer. So it will mean a lot of walk in the sunshine to clear my head. So it's good. And Ido?
2: The moment of the week that I'll be looking forward to is in Brazil. So the Senate is due to debate a constitutional amendment intended to send emergency cash transfers as COVID-19 economic support to about 60 million Brazilians from Monday. Similar direct cash transfers to the poor of about $110 a month. Last year cost about 4% of GDP, which is more or less the most ambitious spending in the history of Brazil. And so really interestingly, that spending cut the numbers of people living on less than about $1.90 a day by nearly two thirds. So just giving people money massively cut poverty. And obviously that has kind of repercussions outside of Brazil because I think a lot of countries are questioning how best to alleviate poverty and spend money as, as governments. And obviously this is quite good evidence that as people in the New Statesman at the New Statesman have often argued giving money to people is the best way to to alleviate poverty. And so it will be interesting to see the extent to which that is repeated versus kind of concerns about fiscal restraint and the fairly shaky public finances in Brazil win the day. And Emily, what will you be looking forward to in the week ahead?
3: I don't know that I would say I am looking forward to this, but it's also Senate related Here in the U.S., Congress will be back from recess. And so we will see if finally some of the the COVID relief plan that's been touted since Biden took office will finally make its way through. One of the arguments made for trying to wrap up the impeachment trial was that we could then move on to the Biden agenda. So I will be interested to see whether or not that agenda is actually transformed or, or passed in the form of policy that can help people during what is still a very difficult
2: time so all that remains is to say thank you to wine in for joining us
3: thank you for having me and if you've enjoyed this episode of world review please do leave us a review like subscribe and tell your friends and nemesis all about it
2: as a reminder you can subscribe to our twice weekly world review newsletter at new slash world hyphen review And follow all our international coverage at our international homepage, newstatesman.com slash international. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening and until next week.
5: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus,